My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Artist and hip-hop historian Fab Five Fred Brathwaite has described April Walker as the Chanel of streetwear. She deserves this accolade because she is without a doubt a founding member of the streetwear industry that blew up in the 90s and has continued to exert its influence on the global stage. Walker's superpower was, and probably still is, recognizing that something new was happening in the culture and there was no representation of that in fashion. Hip-hop was finding its place, its creators jumping from the streets into homes via Yo! MTV raps. What they wore in the videos had to represent their sensibility and style in a way that would resonate with an audience that now included millions who wanted to be down with the scene. And if they saw one of their heroes wearing April Walker, just like they do today on social media, they wanted it too. So when her seminal Walker wear designs were worn by the likes of Tupac, Biggie, and Snoop Dogg, her business took off and her name was enshrined as a pioneer. What happened next is what we're going to talk about today. This matters because the originators don't always get the credit they deserve, and even less so if they are BIPOC women. The rewards of launching an industry that generates billions and billions of dollars around the world are often left for others to reap while the OGs get left behind. April Walker knows the story well, and she's doing what she can to mentor, coach, teach, and lead the way into a fairer world where everyone is treated equally, has the same opportunity to succeed, and get the recognition they deserve. So welcome, April Walker. Thank you for having me today. That was an awesome introduction. I hope I can live up to that. <laughs> That's, yeah, I do that for that very reason, just to raise the bar really high. On your Instagram, you call yourself the Sacagawea of urban fashion. Mm-hmm. Why is that? She was the young girl who went with Lewis and Clark on their expedition, right? And- right. She was the indigenous young woman who led the way with the Lewis and Clark expedition. And you hear of Lewis and Clark, but you rarely know Sacagawea's name. And in that way, me being the first female in a male-dominated industry of streetwear and trailblazing in that path, you know, many don't know who I am today. So that comparison is an analogy to the fashion industry and to life. We're in a moment now in history where people are realizing that more than ever, and there's progress. First step is recognize you have a problem, right? Right. So we've got past that, but what's next? What do we do now? How do we move from that first step? I think communication is increasing the awareness. You're using your platform in such a way I think a conversation, as many conversations as we can have to increase communication and understand each other. Once we come to a point of understanding, we can begin to do the healing, but that's going to take work and it's going to take willing participants to change from the corporate 
environment all the way down to the consumer environment, just being more mindful and sensitive and making changes that implement, like you said, equality, equity for everyone. Before we were here, we were there in the past, a long time ago, I guess it seems now. And there seems to be a huge appetite to know more about that time. They've heard of these people, but they don't really know or can't really imagine what it was like. For one thing, New York has changed so much. I'm sure the Brooklyn neighborhood where you grow up is very different from what it was. You know, Tell us about it then and now, if you're still there. I don't know where you live today. I am, actually. It's been full circle. We've traveled a lot, but I've always stayed in Brooklyn. And Brooklyn in the 80s is much different than Brooklyn in 2020. When I came up in Brooklyn, it was literally during the crack era. That's when I started Fashion in Effect, which was my first shop. And it was like a war zone. It was not safe on the streets here in Brooklyn. You had to watch over your back. You had to see your surroundings. You had to always be on point. For me, from an artistic point of view, I think it was much more organic because people were in such a state of self-expression because they had so much to say. So they were using art and graffiti and, and music. This is how the culture was still shaping itself through being the CNN of of the streets in terms of all art forms down to films. And we didn't know what we were doing, but I think that it was literally taking everything that was inside and dumping it somewhere. And that somewhere for us became hip hop. And you could see it manifest itself on the streets. If you went to the playgrounds in, in the parks, DJs would bring out their turntables and you would be dancing in the park or in the gym or strobe lights, or, you know, graffiti on the streets that was very underground at that time. It wasn't a commissioned mural like you see now. You would actually go to jail for doing art in the streets, whereas now it's by popular demand. So a lot of things have changed. The streets have become very gentrified in my neighborhood, and it's very clean. It's very polished. That grittiness of New York, though, that's gone. It has some great benefits as well with the amenities and, you know, organic food and it's a safer environment. But I also miss the art form and the beauty that came out of that period in tough times. You came from a creative family in the sense that your father, I believe, was in the music business. Yeah. What kind of music, first of all, was he into and how did he react to your interest then? My father is just so musical. He, he went from managing jazz artists. So he worked with McCoy Tyner and Gary Bartz and a lot of the legends in the jazz time. You know, I grew up with Jackie McLean and uh, during the time of Max Roach. And then when I became a teenager, he started getting into R&B and he started managing a group called D-Train. And D-Train, you know, was really big. And that's when I started going with him to the clubs. And, and that's when I think I started really getting a visual 
perspective for fashion more because the club scene in the 80s was like no other from Studio 54 to The Fever to Funhouse to Latin Quarters to Bonds Internationals and Broadway Internationals and Zanzibar. They would play at all of these places. So I would get a sense of everything from the garage, which was house music, to Roxy's, which was very hip hop. So I really had a lens, a, a diverse lens of what that looked like. And then he started managing jazz and Jay-Z and working with them in the beginning stages. And so that's how I got my introduction, you know, started styling. But he was on board with it because he was always a creative. So as a creative, he just was like, find your way and just make a way, you know, don't do what you think other people want you to do, but do what you really believe in. So I think he was one of the only ones at that moment in time that I can remember that encouraged me because everyone else thought I was crazy. You have to remember it was the eighties and I just graduated from school and I was still in college. And the, the right thing at that time, it seemed like was to get a great secured career and for me, I'd pass, I think, the, the corrections test and the fire department's test. And, and here I am getting my first shop. So people thought I was crazy. But he, because he understood that you can make a life of being creative yeah. artist. Music wasn't particularly your thing. No. In the sense of wanting to get into that end of the business. So when did you decide that it would be fashion? Were you already were styling? Were you working with the bands of no. that your dad was with? No? No, I started because I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I didn't want to work for someone else. And one day I went to Amateur Night at the Apollo. And after I went to Amateur Night at the Apollo, I went to visit Dapper Dan with my friends. One of them was getting something made. And when we went there, I just was like a light bulb went off. You know, there was nothing like that at that time that I'd ever seen. And I just was like, this is what I want to do. But represent for Brooklyn, because Brooklyn was very different than Harlem. So I came home and I just started figuring it out, you know, we got some machines. Your tribe will find you. So we were all in love with hip hop. My sisters, I had some college students with, that were graduating. And literally, my home became like a home studio, little couture studio. And we just made a homemade cutting board. We made a cutting table and we had a few singer machines and we just started figuring it out. We knew where the fashion industry was. So we started going and just experimenting with fabrics and making things. And once I saw like we have some traction here and we were like, yeah, we really can do this. We got our first shop, which was about maybe six months later. And it was about literally five blocks from my home. And it was in Clinton Hill on Green Avenue, 212 Green Avenue. And it was called Fashion in Effect. And I was a junior in college at that time. And what was like the Dapper Dan scene like uptown? You went to the Apollo, you said, what did you see? Do you remember what you were, I don't, saw there? That was the 80s. But I remember, <laughs> I remember it was a crew of us that night. And I remember I had on this long leather coat with fur around the collar and and some bangs and that's when you were wearing like you look at pictures and I had white stockings <laughs> you laugh now but some plaid pants 
I wouldn't have laughed now because that's probably, it sounds very contemporary to me. That's when one of my friends was getting something custom made and we went over there and it was like a Willy Wonka for me. But it was fashion, you know, that's when I realized I love this because I never owned it. I used to get best dressed in high school and stuff like that. But I never thought that's what I would do. But I was always a hustler from the time I was 13. I was teaching gymnastics, selling pots and pans, buying wholesale from the fashion district and going and selling silk suits and linen suits and payday to the women. So I always kept a side hustle going. So. By this time, I was like, I'm all in. And that's how I pretty much started. I knew that I loved hip hop. I love the music. This is around public enemy time, right? So don't believe the hype. All of that music was really mainstream. A matter of fact, our first shot in fashion, in effect, we put a big mural on the wall with a dog that had gold teeth that said um, FIE, standing for fashion in effect. But then around his neck he had a big clock like flavor flave that said don't believe the hype and when you came in you would just tag your name on the wall so our wall was filled with tags and it was cool i bet i bet you wish you had that wall yeah. today it would be worth something absolutely so was biggie in your neighborhood who were the stars of your neighborhood in those days yeah, Biggie was the star. He wasn't at the time when he first started, when we first started rocking. But, you know, I met him. So I knew of him from the neighborhood. He was always on Fulton Street in Washington. And that side of the, he would hang on the corner, which was near this train station, the C train. And it was the back end for me. We'd have to come out that entrance at night. Because the other side was locked. And that side was a little rougher. So you knew you had to come out with like a screw face, so to speak, and put your mean Brooklyn face on and just walk fast <laughs> and hope for the best. You know, this is the 80s. And so I would see him all the time out there. But one day when I opened the shop, I had an Eric B and Rakim airbrush shirt in the storefront, in the window. And he came in, he asked about it, and we struck a conversation. And that's when I found out about his love for fashion and that he was, you know, an aspiring artist at that time. And he just started representing, like buying stuff from fashion in effect. And we continued to build. And then when he got his deal with Bad Boy, he stayed really loyal. And then that's how I met Puffy and started working with Puffy, et cetera. What was he doing on the corner there? Was he dealing drugs or just that was a spot? Or? It was just a spot where they all hung out. You know, back in the day, you used to hang out in the streets. There were no phones. So, you know, you actually <laughs> go outside and hang out. You know, there was more to do outside than there was. You'd hang out by the phone booth. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, he was hanging out. So it was just neighborhood kids. I'm, you know, I used to see all of them. And then he became one of your customers and that kind of opened the door into the industry of the rappers themselves because that was a whole moment, you know, that I alluded to earlier where, of course, nobody knew what was going to happen, that this was going to blow up into the biggest thing of the decades or of the century, perhaps. And, uh, you know, it was definitely going to take over the world and it's visual as well as musical and all other aspects of the culture. So when did you feel like there was something bigger here than just the neighborhood guy who wants to buy something, that this would 
become a bigger thing, and it also incorporated the culture of graffiti, dancing, and, and fashion. Well, I think it was gradual. There were confirmations along the way. There were a few people that actually played a big part in the beginning stages. Biggie was one, but Brooklyn really was like a magnet by word of mouth. So I would say Jazz and Jay-Z were also instrumental in telling people. I started styling them and working with them. And then they just started buying stuff and telling people, other artists. And then there was... Audio, too, who I give lots of credit to because they were the first group that came in my store at Fashion in Effect and said, can you do our cover for an album? And that cover was I Don't Care. And I actually styled the outfits and made the outfits on that cover with Shirt Kings. And that became iconic. And from that experience, they came back and said, can you style my video? And I'd never done a video. But from that, they opened my eyes to the world of styling. And I started the styling division. We actually styled countless videos and photo shoots and album covers and movies. And, you know, I would have never had that experience probably so early on, at least, had I not been given the chance and the opportunity with Audio 2. And then there was Shine Head and Shaggy, which, you know, in that moment, it was such a melting pot with rockers music and reggae and hip hop. And it was a convergence going on. So so they told two friends and I ended up styling Fishbone and all these other people that probably wouldn't have come out of that moment. A matter of fact, the group Living Color, sure. Corey from Living Color, he lived around the corner from the store and ping pong building. So it was a very artistic neighborhood at that time. I remember Guru was my neighbor. He lived literally across the hall from me. Then he had just moved here from Boston and he was trying to get a deal. Later on, they moved two blocks down and took Branford Marcellus's own brownstone. And, wow. you know, Wesley Snipes lived on that block and, and, Rosie Perez lived on the next block from me. So it was very much, we were all figuring it out at that time in this neighborhood. Wow, that's amazing. I had no idea that so many people who have gone on to become legends lived in that radius of, of that block. Right, in that neighborhood in Clinton Hill. Yeah, fantastic. When the Yo MTV hit, right? And then everybody had to do the videos, like you were saying. Everyone needed clothes. And everyone had their big logos, right? So it was kind of obvious who had made what. And everybody wanted it. So I'm curious also, like, two things. One is just, were you building a business at this time in the sense of how you would today? So let's say if you know what you know today and you were back then, would you have had an office or maybe you did did you have assistant stylists and like the whole operation going or was it still a kind of a one girl band no it was actually much bigger when i first started because it was taking on a life of its own whereas now i've scaled down to scale up you don't need as many people or as many things because you can have automated apps and help you know quickbooks and all these other things to help us right to be seamless you still need to group up and have a team but at that time we needed a bigger team because we had our eyes on big big dreams and it was just shaping itself we didn't know what it was becoming so when i had the 
tailor shop, the fashion in effect, it was seamstresses and people that sewed. And then we had pattern makers and then we had a foreman to run the shop. And then we had sales and then airbrushers. We did a lot of airbrushing and we had acrylic painters. So it really was a magnet for hip hop. And that's how it grew organically. And it word of mouth spread so much that People would ask for the same things that they were seeing in videos. And Ralph McDaniels was the master at that time, but there was no young TV rap. So you would right. watch video music box. And from that, I met McDaniels and I started styling and, and with him, you know. So you think about main source, finesse and sequence and all these videos we started working with Ralph on it. And that's how I met Hype Williams. He was at that time interning and assisting. And that's how he got his start. So from there we went and we kept hearing the same things. I want deeper pockets. I want bigger pockets, more room. I can't fit my hands in my pockets. I want my jeans to fit in or out of my Timberland. There were certain things we kept hearing over and over. So we started adjusting our patterns and specs to serve our tribe. And from that, that's how we made our first suit that was called the rough and rugged suit. And we were inspired by our actual customers that kept telling us the same things to make this denim suit that we created. And and that's where we stepped out on the ledge with Walkerware. And that's how Walkerware was birthed. It was in this transition of coming out of fashion and effect and back to my home studio because we got robbed really bad Christmas Eve a few years after I had the shop. And it was really traumatic for me. And that's how I switched to appointment only. And I had to know who it was. And oh, stuff. shit. You mean you, and you were in the store when I people came in? I was in the store. I came in really early. It was Christmas Eve. We had a lot of orders. I was in with one tailor and they, he was from Harlem. And, you know, it was scary. They pulled out shotguns and oh, you know, and they cleaned out the store. They, they put me down on the floor and stripped us down. You know, it was just like, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. You know, Brooklyn was rough. Mm, yeah, for real. So what happened to Walk Aware? Because I know you relaunched. Right. What was it 2013? Yeah, around 2013, we relaunched. And and honestly, the first five years served as a testing ground for me because it was completely opposite of when I came up. We didn't have any technology. We didn't have the internet. Mm. Our viral was word of mouth and product, right? And so we sold to department stores and chain stores We sold in Japan and in Europe and overseas. And this time I was completely like, I want to connect with people and I want to be engaged with technology. I want to be creative. I missed that because I was still an entrepreneur, but doing other things. And I realized from the consulting company that I had how much I missed it. So I said, I didn't have the gumption to start something all over, but I knew I had a lot of equity value in WalkAware, and I knew it would be great storytelling and a way to connect with other creatives and especially to engage and bridge the gap, so to speak, 
with our culture in terms of storytelling in a very cool way that wasn't preachy. I think our stories and our history is so important and it needs to be amplified through our own voices. So this was a way that I could do it and still learn technology, still learn about what was going on and really get in it to win it and almost have reverse mentorship. That was the premise behind Walk Aware and knowing that I would be able to use that as a spider web and continue other opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. But just what happened in between though? When did you decide to stop? Or- right. I, saw, I stopped in around 2000. First, I went, no, 99, I went and I worked for a year as a vice president over at Fat Farm. And I worked with Russell there. And then from there, I went to N1 and I kickstarted a women's division for N1. And then after that, I started my own pet shop called the Walker Pet Shop. And I got into real estate and some other things. Well, you are a hustler. Yeah. <laughs> in 2006, I started a Walker group and I started ghostwriting and doing a lot of design and marketing for a lot of the fashion clients that I had. And it was everybody from Ron Artest with Kicks and some other Kick companies. And then we did electronics. Um, we did iHip and worked with some MLB and some packaged consumer goods stuff. We did some stuff for classic media and G3, with DreamWorks, you know, licensed products with fashion like Magoo and all that stuff. We did some cool stuff, but from me working with these clients, even Machiavelli, shout out to, you know, Willie Esco and, and Tupac's family. We worked together for a while. All of these clients were great, but it really ignited my appetite again to be creative in my own lane. But was there any other reasons for stopping? Was it like just I the- out. I hated the oh. industry. I left because I was like, I'm done. You know, it became a shit show to me to be honest. And it just became oversaturated. It became less about creativity. I know we all have to make money, but when you compromise the art form totally just for money, that's what it became. And buyers became groupies. And I think that there's only but so much real estate in a store, in a retail space. So if you're not really guarding it and being a great vanguard, it's going to take a toll. And so it took a toll. And I just got tired of it. I watched magic become something that I hated. It became a circus. You know, when I first started magic, it was about writing orders and taking the business serious. And then it became about going to get free clothes and looking at celebrities and no one wrote paper, but trying to get the biggest booth and who could top who. And I just wasn't with any of that. That's not how I started. I'm not uh, yeah, I am knocking that. Like, but that's why I was out. I got burnt out from years and years of also being an entrepreneur. I really started when I was a 21 and I just was in a very superficial industry. The fashion industry is not rocket science, but I feel like a lot of us take it like we are scientists and, and it's taken too serious. So I think that if we're going to be in it, we just need to try to make this world a better place and be nice to each other. So I think it's gotten a lot better. Yeah, well, I'm curious what you think about Rihanna's Savage Fenty fashion show, because that's sort of like the other end of everything that we're talking about right now. Right. I'm all for it. I thought it was amazing. I think she's creative. I love the way she's spiderwebbed her whole brand. She's being creative. She's taking it serious. Her products 
adult. You know, it's not like she's just like, let me cash cow this and put out trash. She's putting the right people in place to work with. And she obviously has a hand in it because it's an extension of herself. And you can see it through the product. So I like that she's thinking about all sizes, all body shapes. And she is really pushing the envelope on fashion. Her makeup line as well is the same thing. Yeah, it's really a fantastic. And even the, the film that they made is just a great way to display the, the fashion. Absolutely. She's been very innovative in every step of the way, and you can see it. Yeah, because if you compare it to the previous extravaganza of Victoria's Secret, this is like miles above that. Absolutely. I noticed you wrote an essay. It's called Fashion World Needs a Reset, Especially for Black Designers. What made you feel that it was a time to write that piece? I think now's the time to amplify our voices in every step of the way. In 2020, we've seen so much happen. And while we are writing this Black Lives Matter, hopefully it will be here to stay and the world will change. I'm just not sure yet. I don't want this to be a trend. I want it to be about real change. But while we have the podium, I want to try to affect as much change as possible. And I think our society has so much work to do. And fashion is just a microcosm of that. But it's something that I've been directly affected by. And I have some influence in it. So I'm going to use the voice I have to amplify what needs to be changed. So I just thought it was the right time, being that we have so much going on in the world and we're paying attention to what those changes need to be. You're addressing the gatekeepers in the fashion world who still deny access resources, are still limited, obtaining capital and financial backing is still difficult for black designers. Do you think, expect the fashion world to respond? I mean, I know there has been progress, which you address as well and recognize that, but what is it that can be done more than what's already been done? It's almost like throwing a bone to... You know, a photographer, you could shoot this or you could be on the cover of that. and Right. Right. I, I agree. I think that there's change being made. I just don't think it's fast enough. I think the change has to come from both ends. I think we have to keep pushing for change at the top, meaning like they need to color it up in the boardrooms. And I don't just mean like a few token Black people. I mean, diverse women of all colors and men of all colors, you know, spice it up. You know, that needs to be the boardrooms because that's the real world, right? Different people in it. And we need that reflected from the top. And then it trickles down from there because those ideas will trickle down. From the, the other end of it, we need to build our own tables. I said that in the article as well. I don't think we wait anymore and we keep knocking on doors. I think we build and then we also support what we build by eating at the table as well. And every other community has a community and they have a community that they support. But I feel like we have to do work. We have to do a lot of work. When we think about the dollars in our own communities, I think it's six hours in our own community and it's 20 to 30 days in other communities. So I think we have work to do there. And that's going to be a lot of work because we've been oppressed for so long that I think that a lot of people are brainwashed. And so it's just going to take work from all ends to create this everlasting change. But 
I never would give up hope on that. That's why I do some of the programs I do with young people, because I think the younger you can reach people to create change and to believe in themselves, the more that you can actually inspire and birth that. Did you ever consider helping to organize or organizing a group that's like sort of an influence group or a lobbyist or some kind of an association with representation that's run and led by you and and others, Kirby, Gene Raymond, uh, there's Marcus Samuelson, there's, you know, I mean, just people that I could think of off the top of my head that already seem to be all agreeing that. that something needs to be done. And they're all sort of activists in their own way. Angelo Baquet from yeah. Awake. Everybody seems to be saying the same thing. But if people are working individually, it's going to be a lot harder than if, you know, you get a group together to do something. I know Brandis is also doing a lot. Brandis Daniels will have fashion role. I have considered it. In the 90s, I started something called Alliance of Minority Designers. We did a few meetings at Magic and in, in, in New York as well. I think we were too young and everyone was blowing up, so to speak. So that was the perfect storm to be ADD. But I think now is the right time for that. And I have been praying on it, to be honest, and I have been meditating on it. And I am working on a few things that I think would actually be movement forward in a big way to help the next generation. So I'm brewing on those things and I want to really firm them up in terms of the, the initial plan and then present those and like you said, create a board, et cetera. You know, you have Virgil has enormous job. Like Kirby just got, yeah. what is it, the Adidas or mm-hmm. you know, a Reebok, sorry, Reebok creative director. Now people are actually being elevated individually. Beth Ann Hardison, you know, for many years has had the Black Models Coalition. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know where that is, but I, it seems like that made a difference. Yes. That's what I'm hoping could come out of this, because as I see so many different important people saying the same thing, they should all be together and they should be the artists and the musicians, not just the fashion world, you know, but it should be like a coalition from all of the different creative industries that want to address the subject. And, you know, with that platform, potentially you can get a lot more attention, you get more media, and it becomes much easier to get the story out. Right. So that's, <laughs> I know you don't need me to tell you what to do, but I'm sorry, I couldn't <laughs> couldn't resist. Because the more people I talk to and I hear them saying the same thing, I just feel like, well, it seems like there's something here that people should like organize around. And even in, you know, in the basketball world where you saw something, you know, come together around that as well. So there just seems to be like a movement in general of people starting to recognize yeah, we have a problem, but if we got together, we could make some progress. Yeah, absolutely. In your article, you make a case for global contribution of black fashion, which I think is something we addressed slightly in that uh, Zoom thing that we did. You know, how so many of the people who actually helped create the culture that we're in today don't get the recognition of having done that because somebody else comes and kind of tops them. And it could be an industry, it could be a corporation, it could just be anybody. And then the people who did it get left behind. Right. There's a lot of creative looting that 
is in the fashion industry and the people that that don't have the financing to put their ideas out there the underserved community or black designers that don't have that capital and need that access you know the people that have the access and capital will come in and basically come in their low riders and check out what's going on and then take it back to the boardrooms and then it becomes mainstream and then it becomes they birth something that's been a trend that's been going on since the beginning of time you think of coal miners and the rags they used to wear on their head and what makes that different than a $300 Chanel scarf, you know, on, on the head. That's where the scarves come from, you know. It's always been. I think that we have to find a way to be more collective now in ownership versus it being one person in an intellectual property. And that's that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. And I think to be realistic in a way to expect major organizations that are predominantly white, male driven to, you know, adjust enough to have a full representation. I just don't see it unless. Sorry. I don't either. I don't know if it has to be throughout the industry in every single category. You know, because some of them you won't necessarily even feel comfortable or want to be a part of, but at least in those industries where you feel that there is a heritage and a history and, you know, a sense of place where you belong, that there should be openness there. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> you alluded to earlier about the purchaseblack.com movement, yeah. where, you know, so little of the money that's actually spent and the community stays there or gets used within the community. So are there any resources there that people can, if they want to be a part of the, of the movement to support black business that they can do? And I know that Marcus Samuelson, I was speaking with, he has a book coming out about black chefs and black cooking cuisine. And he was saying that part of, he included in the book was a resource of addresses and, and phone numbers. And for people, if they go to a particular city and they don't know, you know, where to eat and I want to go support the black chef, he has a listing. So if there are any in that neighborhood or city, they can go there. So is there any such listing or ways that people can find this out? Actually, there is. So I don't I can I can follow up with you and give you the names because I don't remember them offhand. But I just did a panel with, with Pratt Institute and one of the women on the panel was creating an up to date green book. For what you just said, like all places around the country where you could actually shop black. And, and I know Beyonce just started a platform for fashion for brands that are of color where you can go to shop. You can shop Harlem's Fashion Row. They have a list of black designers that they represent and that you can actually purchase on. So there are places and things. So I'll make sure to get you that information as well in links. Thank you. And you mentioned the Green Book. For our people who aren't familiar with that, can you say what that is? So the original Green Book was during a time when it wasn't safe for Black people to travel and they couldn't stay in hotels and other places because they weren't welcomed a lot. So there was a book that actually embraced where you could go if you were Black to eat to to uh, 
for gas stations to, you would buy them sometimes at gas stations, the green books, but they would actually tell you where you could eat, where you could lodge, where you could shop, all of these places in, in safe spaces. So it's a guidebook, like basically like a travel book right. for the United States only, I suppose, right? It was the United States. I'd love to see one. Have you ever seen one, the originals? I saw the original um, artwork. I haven't seen the whole book, but I did. You know, I Googled it. I had to look at it, and it was it was very, very old school. Let's see if I can pull it up and show you now, because I was like, wow, okay, hold on. It was in 1947, so it was called The, the Negro Motorist Green Book. Wow, and who put it together? I forget, but it was like a nine to five or something. It was it was like somebody that was brilliant and just was like, I'm fed up and they started it. So it's cool. Google it. I'll research it a little bit. Well, thank you so much, April Walker, for sharing some of your stories and inspiration for all of us to continue and uh, you know, keep working and, and never give up, right? Absolutely. Never give up. Go yeah. for it. One time someone sent me a book and it and when I was first starting it out and it always stayed with me and it was like April, you know, good luck, yada yada. Don't take shit from anybody. And that would be what I would tell everybody. Don't take shit and follow your dreams. Swing with aim, hustle with muscle, and always, always have faith over fear. Amen. Thank you, April Thank Walker. You. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.